Warm Regards is brought to you by Arcadia Power, the first company to offer a nationwide community solar program. Whether you live in an apartment or a house in California or Kentucky, you can now get solar savings with Arcadia Power anywhere. Arcadia's online platform allows anyone who pays a power bill to subscribe to solar panels from projects across the country and get savings on their monthly bill. Learn more about Arcadia's community solar program and find out how much you can save at arcadiapower.com solar. That's arcadiapower.com solar. Hey everybody, this is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. From Orono, Maine, I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. Eric Holthouse has a toddler poop emergency and couldn't join us today, but I am joined by Andy Revkin in the Hudson Valley of New York, who is now a senior reporter at ProPublica. Of course, many of you know Andy for running the New York Times's dot Earth blog since 2007. Um, Andy, just to take a quick second, I wanted to congratulate you on the new job. Going back to journalism full time, what are you going to be focused on? Uh, the thing that I seem to have been focused on since 1985, which is human humanity's relationship with the climate system. No, seriously, no, it's about climate. Uh, they have a sub- significant sustained support for a full time position. Uh, I felt. Uh, after the nine years of Dot Earth, uh, 2,804 and counting posts, um, it was time to dive deep again. And uh, this is a great opportunity. So, and, and, then, and then along comes President-elect Trump. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think uh, institutions like ProPublica are going to be more important than ever um, now. So I'm psyched to see how this goes for you. Me too. Uh, and this week, we're very pleased to introduce Dr. Jonathan Foley, Executive Director at the California Academy of Sciences, who's joining us today from New York City. So if you go to their website, the Cal Academy bills itself as the greenest museum on the planet and one of the most future-focused scientific institutions in the world. Um, I've known John actually for a while. Um, he was actually at the University of Wisconsin with me when I was a grad student. Uh, but he actually left a position as a professor at the University of Minnesota, where he directed the Institute on the Environment. He's authored over 130 scientific articles in the most prestigious, many, many of which are in the most prestigious uh, journals uh, in the world. Uh, and he's also had numerous accolades from our nation's most respected scientific institutions. And what makes John stand out to me is that he's not only received these accolades for his global change research, but also his really strong commitment to public outreach. He's written popular articles in National Geographic, The New York Times, uh, Scientific American, and other places. So John, just welcome to Warm Regards. We're really psyched to have you. Well, thanks so much, Jacqueline. I'm a big fan of uh, everything you're doing here today. It's fantastic. Great. Um, So as I mentioned, John, you've kind of had an unconventional trajectory as far as academics go. You made this conscious decision to step away from universities when you took the position at the Cal Academy in 2014. As someone who's also a global change scientist who loves to do a lot of outreach, I'm always curious what motivates those decisions. So for you, what compels a really successful global change ecologist to make what for a lot of people was probably an unexpected choice? (laughs) Well, uh, I found it unexpected too, uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I wish I could say there was some grand plan to uh, to do that. Um, it, maybe in retrospect there was, but at the time it didn't feel like it. It was really weird. Um, I was asked to interview for this job at the Cal Academy and I almost refused. I, I really was happy uh, at the University of Minnesota. I still love the place. 
and was doing a lot of really cool stuff um, in research and outreach and public engagement. It was really, um, you know, really in a kind of a nice role there. Um, but the minute I visited the Cal Academy and walked in actually with my family, I was enthralled. Uh, I walked into, you know, seeing a dinosaur, you know, staring at me in the front door and then, you know, seeing the world's largest indoor coral reef and this amazing planetarium and all these things. And it was, I was kind of like a kid in a candy store and I was expecting to not accept the job. But then about 45 minutes into our visit with my family, my oldest daughter looked at me and said, Dad, if you don't take this job, I'm going to have to kick your ass. <laughs> and I looked at her like, <laughs> what do you mean? Because you like it so much. And she said, no, Dad, I've never seen you this happy before. Uh, you've got to do this. And um, it was pretty interesting. So it kind of awoke, um, awakened, I guess, um, the kind of inner 12-year-old that first wanted to be a scientist and realized, gosh, um, we do all this great science in universities, but we have a duty and an obligation to share it with people around the world. And a place like a museum, um, especially one as modern as the Cal Academy, and it's focused on things I care about, like environment and sustainability, was really a great place to be. Um, so that was kind of the, it was like a midlife crisis. I just kind of woke up and like, oh, I got to do this. And I didn't know why. I mean, I, I could have bought a Camaro or something stupid, but uh, <laughs> I'm running a museum. Uh, but the thing I learned after I did it, which is kind of now the rationale um, I'm using to explain it better, um, even though it was really just kind of a whim at first, is um, museums are a really important place. Um, about a, well, at least 900 million people, probably closer to a billion, will walk into an American museum this year. That's huge. It's more than all the sports stadiums and all the theme parks in the country combined. Now, a lot of those are art museums and other history centers and so on, but science and natural history museums are really huge uh, part of that as well. The second part, though, so they're big, but second is they're very trusted. Uh, museums get an approval rating from Republicans and Democrats uh, of about 85 to 90 percent uh, in terms of public trust. Nothing, nothing gets that. Certainly not universities, not environmental groups, and surely not government or business. So they're big and they're trusted. And third, um, I was astonished to learn that Americans learn about 70% of what they know about science outside of a classroom, whether that's K-12 or university and college. So um, places like museums and aquariums and zoos are the biggest educators of Americans in science, it turns out, followed by parks and media, like podcasts like this. So when I kind of realized all that, like, wow, they're big, they're trusted, and they have the heaviest lift of all science education in America, I, so I wondered what took me so long. Um, it's a really <laughs> great thing to do. So, wow. So, like, of the three of us on this podcast right now, um, the two of you have a way bigger impact in terms of um, just the, the general contribution to public science literacy um, and, I, and I teach classes that sometimes have hundreds of people in them. So that's like that's putting that in a really stark perspective. Well, well, Jacqueline, you, you're don't play down your role, and, and also you, you're proving yourself a, a master communicator too. So it's your proof that you can um, communicate in a classroom and also with the outside world. And John, one thing that's really cool about the Cal Academy is. As far as I can tell, you also got some support for uh, some significant new research initiatives there, too. I mean, the museum is doing science as well. It's not just showing science, right? 
Well, exactly. And I was going to say, and Jacqueline, too, you're being far too modest. Uh, it's uh, you and others are breaking the walls down within the ivory tower, which is absolutely necessary. So thank you for what you're doing. We need you where you are um, desperately. Um, we all have a role in this ecosystem and universities are crucial in that because they generate a lot of the knowledge we need and share it. Uh, museums, like Andy was saying, are a little bit the mirror image. We mainly distribute information and engage people, but uh, a few also do some research. Um, and places like the Field Museum, the American Museum of Natural History, and the Cal Academy, along with the Smithsonian, are also research institutions, though quite a bit smaller than universities. Uh, but yeah, we're doing world-leading work on coral reefs, on um, biodiversity research worldwide, and so on. Our, our overall mission is to explore, explain, and sustain life on Earth. Our, our main unit of measure is the world's biodiversity and ecosystems, uh, and especially in an era of global change, which is uh, really kind of a fun place to be. So thinking along those lines of kind of breaking down barriers or, or reaching the general public, um, you've done a lot of popular writing, but you've also recently started blogging at um, The Macroscope on Medium. And I was really touched by one of your posts. Um, this was actually the impetus for inviting you um, onto the show was when this came out. Um, it's called Science, a Deathbed Promise and a Mother's Gift. And, you know, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I, I just saw that it sent so many ripples through the scientific community in particular. And I think partly because it does something that is so important. Um, it, it's it really humanizes scientists and our motivation for doing the work that we do, um, which is really in service to the planet and, and its citizens. So can you talk a little bit about that essay, what motivated you, and also some of the responses that you had to that? Yeah, um, yeah that was, that was uh, the hardest thing I ever wrote um, in my life. Uh, it's a story I, I don't really share very much or, or hadn't. Um, it, it's... Um, well, it's a story about what happened to me when I was a teenager. My mother, um, I was growing up in, in Maine, actually, Jack Lanier, where you live now. And my mother had died of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, a terrible, terrible, long degenerative illness. And uh, it was really hard, um, especially as a kid, to watch the person you love more than anyone in the world waste away before your eyes and not be able to do anything. Uh, that feeling of hopelessness and uh, helplessness was, um, you know, just devastating. Um, and I still feel that pretty much every day today, to be perfectly honest. But when she, just before she died, the day uh, before she died, she, in her very halting speech, you know, she couldn't really use her voice very well at that point, asked me to make her a promise uh, to do the best in my life that I could to kind of, you know, live my life to the fullest and to do the best I could for the world around me. And that's just a good mothering. You know, she wanted me to have a purpose, a direction, and she wouldn't be there for me anymore. And, um, so I did make that promise, but I was 17, and I didn't know how. Um, and I spent the rest of my life kind of searching on how to do that. And I stumbled into science. Um, I was pretty good at some of it. And so I guess that gave me a lot of focus and direction that um, I decided that I would dedicate my life to doing science for the broadest public good that I knew how to do. And eventually found my way into um, environmental research, especially on climate change, um, and then later on things like food security and other things. And that's always been kind of my, more, my North Star, the thing that guided me through my career and my life. And um, I never really told anybody about it. And um, as scientists, we're, we're taught that we're not the story, that you know, the data are the story. This is, you know, this is what's important. We aren't important, that we're neutral. We're not part of what we observe. 
And that's not really true. Um, what we see in science is guided by our experience, by our humanity, just as much as by our scientific uh, skills and the data. And we don't like to acknowledge that. And, and yet over the years, I've met lots of inspiring scientists, people who had amazing lives, who inspired me, mostly through their personal stories, the, the, the obstacles they've overcome, uh, the, the, the accomplishments they've had personally, and so on, not just the data they collected. And so I don't know, in the middle of the night one night, I just started to write that. And I sent it out, and I was actually a little bit uh, terrified, you know, by what my colleagues would think. Would they think I was being too emotional or grandstanding or whatever? And um, I was, I was kind of shocked, but gratified, I guess, that the reaction was ex- extraordinarily positive. I read a lot of beautiful letters that people wrote me, um, many sharing similar stories. It was, it was very, very nice. Um, I'm glad I did it. Maybe I should have done it earlier, but uh, it was not easy. Well, it's it. It's a wonderful thing. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the um, Twitter hashtag, I am a scientist because, which, which I wrote about a year or two ago when I s- stumbled on it. And, and I think what's really, what engages people is in most scientists I know, and, and most journalists, uh, when you ask them what they do or what, the, you know, who the, you know, it's like, what do you do? That, what's the, that's the first question we tend to ask people. What do you do? So what, what do you do? As opposed to why do you do what you do? And, and there's such a difference between the what do you do and the why you do it. So I'm a scientist because when I do communication workshops for scientists uh, now, I, I start with that hashtag and I say, how would you answer that? And, and, and it's immediately more engaging for the average person to know why someone does particle physics than to know the details of particle physics. So it's well, exciting. It's great. Well, exactly. That's, that's something I mentioned to grad students and younger scientists I meet all the time saying, hey, you know, how many of you wanted to be a scientist when you were 12 years old? And um, in most of the groups I hang out with, especially natural scientists, um, they often raise their hands and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I wanted to be a biologist or I was, you know, running around in the woods collecting frogs or whatever. I mean, kids are sort of natural born scientists. So it's, it's I asked them to go back and remember that and say, well, what made you want to do that? What, what inspired you to, um, to lead this very strange lifestyle and career? And um, they all have a great story, but we, we rarely tell them. And uh, I joke sometimes too, though, like, well, if you, if you knew that being a scientist meant you'd be spending you know, hundreds of hours writing proposals, sitting on panels, being on committees, and sitting in boring faculty meetings, would you have done it? And of course, everybody says, hell no. <laughs> you know, um, the, the, you know, the reality of professional scientific careers isn't exactly what we thought it would be when we were 12. Um, but that's why it's so important to go back and recapture that passion for science, like why it's so cool and exciting to learn about the world around us. And that's a beautiful thing about my day job now is um, running a museum. I get to see, you know, young kids come into our museum with their parents or loved ones and grandparents, whatever, and see that magic happen every single day. And it's really inspiring. I've very rarely had a bad day running a museum because you can always walk out on the floor and see some kid's eyes sparkle and come to life. And that makes everything worthwhile. Yeah, I really, uh, I really resonate with that right now. So I was a pre-tenure faculty and just realizing just how much of my time is now spent in front of a computer or doing, you know, administrative work or sitting in meetings, like so much of my time is sitting in meetings, I, I almost never get to get into the lab anymore. I kind of do science vicariously through my students. But I will say that, you know, that one moment in the field like sitting on a beach in the Falklands with penguins walking around me, you know, like that, I live for those, right? That one time a year, it it kind of makes everything else worth it because I would never have those opportunities otherwise. It's like we talk about work-life balance. Maybe we need to talk a little bit more about like 
work-life wonder balance. There's another facet to that. There's another facet to that. Um, the the wonder and the joy and, and stuff, which is the concern part. Um, and many scientists I know have struggled with the um, how do you speak out as a citizen and, and retain your scientific rigor and uh, respectability as well. And that's sort of like a flip side of the same phenomenon. And there too, though, I found um, there there are masterful people. Um, Ken Caldera is one. John Foley is another. Uh, and Jacqueline is another, who kind of um, have found a way to articulate their feelings as a person while still, um, you know, step then pausing and saying, by the way, this is the science I do. In other words, the is of science and the ought of what we do about something are really distinct and, and having a comfort level with getting at that is, is important. And I think you, you know, you're demonstrating that as well. Well, it's hard to do. I think, though, I think scientists sometimes wrestle unnecessarily with, um, you know, trying to create a false wall between your humanity and your science. So I think you just have to be very clear which one you are talking through, uh, you know, which hat you're wearing it, so to speak. And uh, I don't really see them as much in conflict as I think some of my colleagues do. Um, uh, that, but you know, the, the Hippocratic oath I have in my mind is, you know, first be true to your data and, you know, always challenge your assumptions. That's good science, but it's also good policy. It's good public discourse. Um, if our politicians and our, our other quote unquote leaders were also a little more circumspect, so, well, let's be honest to the evidence and let's assume my assumptions could be wrong. Um, that's how scientists think about everything. Um, if we thought about, you know, energy policy and economics, the way we think about, you know, statistical data from climate change, um, you know, testing our ideas and being rigorous to them, we'd have better public affairs happening too. So I don't think the, the laws of science, if you will, um, really are incompatible with, um, you know, public policy or the larger civic discourse. And so I think we can, you know, as scientists kind of be rigorous and speak to things outside of our discipline uh, and still be effective. But it's just about honesty and integrity and being challenging yourself to not fall into uh, intellectual traps where the data don't support what you think. That's a really good segue into one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, especially as a scientist who does a lot of public communication in a sphere where there are other scientists listening, um, like Twitter or blogs. You know, I, I often come across these sort of not maybe hidden debates about the language or the rhetoric that we use both as scientists in our own work, but in our in the way that we conduct outreach with the public. And, you know, so if you look at some of your most highly cited papers, you know, I went to your Google Scholar page, John, before the show, a lot of the titles are very evocative. They focus on ideas on things like tipping points, or there's one on the safe operating space for humanity that you're a co-author on. And I've recently seen some scientists push back on that kind of rhetoric or the idea of tipping points in general um, or critical thresholds, um, saying that they're sensationalist or, or maybe gloomy and they turn people off from science or even that they're just so unpredictable that we shouldn't even be talking about them. So this, I feel like, is a nice little uh, example of a kind of a scientific concept that has made big ripples throughout our community and now sometimes get some pushback in certain circles. So I'm just wondering, do you think tipping points in general are a useful framework? Um, are we approaching one? How will we know when we get there? Well, I, um, I certainly hear the concern. And I think that uh, like a lot of ideas that become you know, um, a little more mainstreamed, they can be uh, used well and used poorly. Um, and that's why a good discussion in the scientific community is helpful. So um, I think it's great that there's pushback. Um, good ideas need push and pull all the time. Um, 
But, you know, of course, um, nature doesn't care what we think. Uh, nature is going to do what it does. And nature clearly has, you know, what we, you know, the nonlinear behavior. It clearly has thresholds where, you know, something changes sometimes irreversibly or effectively irreversibly and often changes very, very fast. Uh, we see this all the time in ecological systems, whether it's lakes um, kind of quote-unquote flipping to a eutrophic state, which is, um, you know, science for uh, and geeky for just green and slimy. Um, you know, you've spent a lot of time in Wisconsin. All those lakes flipped to being eutrophic. Um, people like Steve Carpenter have written about this for decades now. Uh, we see it in the uh, paleoclimate record too, um, like in the Sahel and the, you know, our the kind of, you know, the sudden expansion of the Sahara or the changes in ice core data and so on. So nature doesn't like to follow straight, slow, steady, linear paths. It has sudden changes that are often abrupt. Uh, we know that. And whether you call it a tipping point, a regime shift, or a, you know, inflection point or whatever, um, we have to be careful about the rhetoric. Um, we don't want people to watch the day after tomorrow and think that that's actually science or anything. Um, and not to overhype it. But I think the idea of a tipping point or something like that is powerful. It is how nature actually behaves. And we need to be wary of that. Um, that as we move into the 21st century, we have already seen some of these happen, uh, maybe in the regional scale, like individual lakes or the collapse of the Aral Sea or whatever. Uh, you might look at those. But at the global scale, well, it, yeah, I don't think we've seen those yet here um, in this century. So I don't know. It's an interesting point. Um, but I agree, too, that um, in some of the climate um, conversation, this idea has gotten overinflated, maybe, and um, uh, maybe overplayed by a few. Um, but it, it's nevertheless real. So I think, I don't know, we have to find the middle ground. But I'd be curious what Andy thinks about this, because he's probably he's written a lot about this and Dot Earth and a few things, too, uh, you know, where you find that middle ground of credibility, but um, and concern, but uh, where do you strike the right balance with this concept? Well, I think, it, and this relates to the planetary boundaries too. I think some of them are are clear, and some of them are like to me uh, in assessing that stuff a lot, including in my Anthropocene working group work. Um, the um, like there is there, there's no water global planetary boundary. There, uh, water is local, and so making sure that the the discussion focuses with sort of a focuses in as the second round of planetary boundaries papers did more clearly on the ones that are, you know, pretty straightforward. Um, and, and not assuming that everything has a boundary of that sort. Uh, I, you know, like for example, you know, the connection between biodiversity and, um, overall ecological resilience, I'm sure there's still lots of questions there as opposed oh, yeah. to how, how ecosystems, uh, you know, what makes them resilient? Is it the number of species or the, or the reactability of species or whatever, you, you know, there, um, what happens in the public discourse, of course, is everything gets distilled down to these little crystalline sound bites where everything is uh, becomes a tipping point, and that's where it does lose meaning. Um, and in climate, too, for sure, I think it's the two degrees is this, is is a policy driven uh, conclusion. Not there's there's not a tipping point. I was just with two of the most senior MIT climate analysts uh, who on Earth, and we had a long discussion about that uh, just two days ago. So it's like, it, it's, but it's harder, you know, then you get into the rhetoric of the public sphere and you say, well, so there's a, a gradient, you know, more warming means more trouble, <laughs> which we, uh, that's harder for, to get people's attention with. But, but if you do overstate something, then people fuzz out also. It's, it, it's it, there, the, you know, I think testing experience, uh, discourse, um, 
and scientists and the public mean different things when they use words, which is another really important thing that John John really gets at. Like uh, the papers on the collapse of the uh, West Antarctic ice sheet being inevitable, uh, the headlines were like made it sound like that was going to happen next week, when in fact it's over a period of, of the next millennium. Well, exactly, and yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And as scientists, we need to be really careful about that. It's um, so I get I yeah, I don't know I. I I think I would say like in the scientific realm of, you know, the actual papers and, you know, what the people who, you know, wrote about planetary boundaries and tipping points, what they're actually saying is, I think, quite defensible. And and they're very, um, these papers, which I'm a co-author in a few of the bigger ones, but not all of them. um, I think, you know, people went out of their way to be very careful and circumspect, you know, put the idea out there, but also, you know, reflect on what its limitations and where the caveats should be. But when, yeah, when we distill it down to uh, uh, something in the more public conversation, uh, some of that gets jettisoned right away um, and gets polarized either to one extreme or the other sometimes. And that's probably where the danger lies. But um, but I, I'm glad that the conversation's happening. I mean, it, you know, that we, nature does have thresholds. They do exist. Whether we got them all right, do we know where they all are? Of course not. We don't. But to just pretend they don't exist at all is um, far more dangerous than maybe being a little more, uh, you know, erring on the side of like, oh, you know, uh, we have to be careful about this. this isn't a bad thing. Uh, so I don't know. It's an ongoing conversation, which is good. And as a teacher for most of my life, too, I like that, you know, things like this provoke a conversation. Uh, if all science just simply was accepted, you know, exactly as it was written and everybody just nods and says, well, that was obvious, then we aren't doing our jobs. <laughs> you know, So a little bit of provocation, you know, um, being provocative is uh is a good thing, but um, but responsibly and to you know speaking to what the data actually say and being careful to uh, acknowledge the limitations is always 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 important. I would agree with that, and I love that you frame this as a conversation that not only is sort of recursive among scientists, but also between scientists and stakeholders and, and members of the general public. And I wish that we had more space for that kind of conversation. I get really concerned about the fact that. Um, you know, people come to us looking for definitive answers to questions that may have a lot of uncertainty or may benefit from a lot of back and forth dialogue. And if we don't create space for that dialogue, then we're shutting down not only the science itself, but also the, the general public discourse about the framing of that science and the repercussions of that science. And I'm, I've been really happy to see, especially in a lot of science communication efforts lately, a big emphasis on science as a process rather than the results themselves. And I think that the more kinds of stories that we can tell about what it's like to be scientists and to do science and how we generate hypotheses, how the scientific method works, how, you know, sometimes ideas don't work out, how failures happen. I think it's really important that we create some space for understanding science as a process. And that process includes a recursive back and forth among scientists and between scientists and the public. And ultimately, that should generate more trust, right, by understanding where our biases come from, um, how what our motivations are, um, the in, sort of internal disagreements that happen within science that are often invisible to the general public. Um, but also just that when we do come together in consensus on, on certain topics, uh, like anthropogenic global warming, um, that is incredibly powerful. And that doesn't mean that everything's locked down and we have, you know, we understand every small detail about how the world works. Um, but the conversations and the disagreement and the space for that are so important. And I, I'm happy to see more uh, coverage of science as a process and 
that I think will go a long way to, to getting people to understand how this process works. Well, I th- absolutely. Um, I, I'll just add a little bit too. I think scientists need to do a better job of um, not just doing outreach. I hate that word outreach. It's like, you know, we're the experts somehow we're broadcasting knowledge to people around us. And that, that's such hubris and arrogance, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I'd much prefer the term engagement. Where uh, I know, you know, when I spend time in the communities I've lived in, um, I've really learned a hell of a lot more from the people I talk to outside of the university or the museum than they ever did from me. And um, so I think science is, you know, not only benefits for other folks to understand how scientists work, it really benefits scientists to know how other people in the real world work. Um, and, uh, you know, that's especially at a place like, uh, well, the University of Maine, for example, Jacqueline, you know, you're at a land-grant university. You're, you, part of your mission is to serve the larger public good. Um, I love that about when I was at the University of Wisconsin in Minnesota. It's just, you know, like, hey, we're, we work for you, um, the rest of the state and the rest of the region. And that was really great. Um, I think academics have a hard time kind of um, remembering that. And there are not a lot of incentives to do that so much sometimes. But um, it's really important. Um, I think it makes us better scientists, too. It's not just being able to talk about our science better, but you might stumble across a really interesting question that other people would be asking, but we never bothered to ask the rest of the world, you know, what the question was. Um, that drives me nuts in um, uh, some of the research on the environment. We, we you know, be, we go to our labs, we do our research, and then, you know, we publish a paper, and then at the end of it all, we go and try to talk to the larger world about how important our work was and the great question we just answered. But a lot of society just shrugs its shoulder and says, well, yeah, but I don't care about that question. You didn't ask me what my question was, which might be something very different. And so I think scientists need to do a better job of engaging, you know, our colleagues out in the real world, um, our neighbors and friends and our communities at the beginning of our careers and the beginning of our research, not at the end. Um, Anyway, uh, sorry for going on that little soapbox, but I think um, science is a recursive process, as you said, um, you know, within the scientific community, but we need to iterate back and forth throughout all scientific investigation, not just at the end of our projects, but also right at the beginning and throughout. Uh, it's really important to do that, I think. We're going to pause the show here for just a minute to talk about a very cool new product from our sponsor, Arcadia Power. Have you ever thought about going solar, but you can't because you rent or your roof is too shaded? Well, now, for the first time ever, you can reduce your monthly bill with Arcadia Power's Community Solar Program. Arcadia Power is an online renewable energy company that's making solar savings more inclusive to homeowners and renters in 50 states. Arcadia's nationwide community solar program allows anyone who pays a power bill to subscribe to solar panels from projects across the country and get savings on their monthly bill no matter where they live. It only takes a few minutes to subscribe to solar panels online and start saving. Arcadia offers you a modern, personalized solar experience to track everything. Arcadia's dashboard provides real-time solar production monitoring, direct on-bill crediting, and savings analysis. You can also take advantage of energy-saving tips and efficient products to help you lower your bills even more. Learn more about Arcadia's community solar program and find out how much you can save at arcadiapower.com solar. That's arcadiapower.com solar. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about one of the themes of your work, John, which has been, um, you know, I, I, you're a global change ecologist, but a lot of your work, especially uh, in more recent years, was related uh, to food and food security and food systems. And you've, you've said some really provocative things about uh, the impacts of food production on global change and including um, 
pushing back on the idea that population per se is the thing that we need to focus on to if we want to combat global climate change. And you've argued a lot about how it might be more about how we eat and what we eat and not necessarily how many of us are eating. Uh, you've got a TED talk where you frame this as the other inconvenient truth. So w- are we paying enough attention to food and its impacts on climate? Oh, definitely not, in my opinion. Um, so food is the biggest thing to hit the planet since the end of the last ice age. Um, not Nothing even comes close to it, certainly not energy. Um, not yet. Um, just look at the numbers. Uh, right now, about 35 to 40 percent of all the land on Earth has been cleared uh, fundamentally and converted in massive ways just for growing food. Uh, that's more change to the planet's ecology than climate change could ever do. Uh, and we've already done it. Now we're going to add climate change on top of it. Uh, we think about 70 percent of all the water used on the planet, a bigger, much bigger change to the water cycle than doubling CO2 would ever do. That's also already happened, and only for one thing, irrigation, to irrigate crops. We've doubled the flows of nitrogen and phosphorus across the planet just from fertilizers. And um, in speaking of climate change, it turns out agriculture and deforestation that's linked to agriculture together are about eh, 25, maybe 30% historically of greenhouse gas emissions, mostly from deforestation, methane from cattle and rice fields, and nitrous oxide from fertilizers. Um, that's twice as big as the next biggest emitter of, of greenhouse gases, which would be all the world's transportation uh, or all the world's electricity just after that. So if you want to think about habitat loss, ecosystems, water, water quality, hypoxia, and climate change, all of them lead back directly to how we use and produce food on the planet, period. Um, energy is kind of a distant second in terms of changing the planet, though still very, very important. But whether it's climate change or biodiversity or water, you've got to look at food first if you want to solve the problem. And so, yeah, uh, I think agriculture is a big, big deal. Um, I think it's gotten relatively little attention until the last couple of years and still not nearly enough. And um, yeah, and the causes of it um, are not just population. Certainly the number of people in the world has a lot to do with all this. Uh, be a lot easier with a billion people than, you know, seven or eight or nine. But um, really, it's about per capita consumption. It's really about diets and waste and biofuels and, you know, this kind of thing. The, um, you know, when it takes 30 pounds of grain to make one more pound of beef, uh, edible boneless beef, that is, um, you know, diets matter. That's a 30-fold multiplier based on where you live in the world and your diet. So, yeah, the number of people matters, but a lot more matters about economic conditions and uh, preferences that we have around the world. And also when you talk about population, I'm just very conscious of being a uh, upper middle class white guy with an education in America. For me to talk about population is just ridiculous because, you know, just because of an accident of history, I happen to use a lot more resources than a lot of other people on the planet. And so if you want to talk about fixing the population problem, you've really got to start with people who look like me uh, and probably the bunch of us on the radio today uh, here. Um, because sometimes when we talk about population, I, I just worry that it's kind of a surrogate for, um, oh, it's not my problem. It's all those other people in the world who might have darker skin than me in a poorer country than me and having too many babies. And that just makes me very uncomfortable because that's, you know, that's actually not what's causing the big uh, environmental problems of today. They're mostly the about a billion rich people in the world are causing a lot more damage than the other six billion people in the world. 
So we just have to be careful when we talk about population. Let's acknowledge it, but let's really look at the drivers, which is kind of uh, uncontrolled consumerism and uh, very inappropriate choices of diet, uh, resource consumption, energy use, and so on that we need to remedy at the top of the world's economic pyramid, not at the base. Although <laughs> it has to fit into the conversation on the vulnerability reduction and sustainability side, uh, you know, Nigeria by later the century, a uh, mid-range uh, mid projection for just Nigeria is 750 million people. And it's uh, way less than half that now. It's uh, 200 million, I think. Um, and so Nigeria's prospects for a sustainable future within Nigeria, if girls' education, which is a really wonderful way to uh, foster family planning without doing family planning, meaning, you know, without being intrusive, um, is probably the single best thing you could do for that country's prospects. So when we make our choices here about um, uh, foreign aid and that kind of thing, if we're not thinking about that, then there's big uh, problems to come as well. Oh, I totally agree with that. I, I'm, I should have said that as well. Uh, in, oh, and I don't, by the way, and I, I don't disagree like, so with a we, single thing you said. <laughs> yeah, that, I think it should be and, not or. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I only completed half the idea and you helped complete the second part. Yeah, the the big environmental problems are probably caused by the top billion people or a couple hundred million more than anybody. But the people who are going to get pay the price for it are at the bottom of the economic pyramid and they're getting much more numerous. Uh, because of population growth. So it's maybe not the driver of environmental change, but they're going to be the, the unlucky recipients of most of the damage. And so, yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, if you could wave a magic wand and do one thing in the world, um, I would do what you just mentioned, the so-called girl effect, you know, getting more girls in the world um, who have no elementary education. In many parts of the world, there are about 600 million girls in the world who still don't have what we consider primary school education. But when you do that, you know, you see unleash unbelievable economic opportunity. You see birth rates plummet. You see girls getting an education and creating, you know, opportunities for themselves and their communities. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. So I totally agree with you. But I guess uh, I don't want to abdicate our responsibility as wealthier kind of Americans um, and say, oh, it's all those other people totally. causing the problem. Like, no, they're the ones who are going to pay the price for us causing the problem. Exactly. So for those of us who are contributing to the problem, um, the one billion responsible, what what can we do as individuals to make a difference? Um, and is the individual scale even the right scale to focus on? Um, do individual actions matter? Um, or should we be putting pressure on our governments to, you know, to have better regulations? Um, I know that's a lot. It's a big question. But, you know, a lot of people, especially a lot of our listeners, want to know, what can I do as an individual? Can I make personal choices that actually have an impact? Or should I be focusing my efforts uh, on our elected officials? Well, I don't think it has to be either or. Um, but one thing I really um, think as a scientist, we tend to, we, <laughs> we're we not um, immune from beltway head thinking where, you know, all good ideas must go through Washington or maybe the UN. And, uh, well, how is that working out for us lately? Um, especially with this incoming administration. I think we're going to have to take a buyout on the next four years of having effective policy in Washington on climate change, for example. So, okay, let's look elsewhere. There are thousands and thousands of levers of decision-making out there, whether it's in cities and towns, counties and states, but also corporations, NGOs, schools, school districts, and so on. And, yeah, millions and millions and millions of individual homes and cars and decisions that we make every single day. So I think we need to look um, across the entire landscape. And, and let's not forget, too, like a policy doesn't actually materially change any emissions. 
ever. It's just a damn piece of paper. Uh, it's, it's engines and power plants and light bulbs, and those are what change emissions, actually. So um, what we need to do is figure out how to get the boots-on-the-ground changes we need. Good policy and regulations obviously help a lot with, um, when they happen. But if they don't happen, what do you do in the meantime? So I would really like to see, I don't think we've yet seen a serious kind of uh, international or even national effort for uh, vast increases in personal decision-making around climate change. I think we talk about it. Uh, there are some pretty lame little lists out there. Here are 10 things you can do to you know, fight climate change. But usually they're the wrong 10 things or they, they're mixing up climate with a whole bunch of other issues. And they haven't scaled. But in an era of things like Facebook and Twitter and things where individual voices can be amplified by the millions, um, why not? Um, so I'm actually getting more bullish about the idea of, you know, personal actions maybe scaling much better. Um, yeah, you and me just doing it individually, that's nothing. But if we did it by the millions uh, or at least hundreds of thousands, it starts to move the needle. Um, I, and I live now in San Francisco, which um, I was so thrilled when I moved to San Francisco. I realized that the average San Franciscan uses about um, maybe one-fifth as much CO2 uh, for their daily lives as the average person in Minneapolis. Um, because, you know, one, they use a lot less electricity, um, partly because we live in smaller places and we don't need air conditioning and as much heat. They use very little natural gas and people use a lot more public transportation. Um, you know, so individual choices actually make a huge difference if you look around the country, though a lot of that's reinforced by policy and planning. So I don't know. I, I think the role of individuals makes a big difference. Um, we're going to be starting next year. I'm giving you maybe a little sneak preview um, at our museum. We're trying to figure out what's the equivalent of like seafood watch, but for climate change. How do, you know? How do you give people easy steps and a guide like on their smartphone of like you know, huh? What should I do again for climate change on this or this or this? And we're breaking it down into five major categories. Um, it's well, it's actually not just for climate change. It's going to be focusing on how can I live more responsibly for climate change, but also for habitat loss and biodiversity preservation and for sustaining fresh water. So we divided um, our daily lives into five areas, food, water, electricity, heat, and transportation. And depending where you live, we give people like three things to really focus on in each of those categories. So it's a total of 15 things, which sounds like a lot. But maybe what we're going to do is divide it up during the year, like during this part of the year, like our campaign is going to focus mostly on food, and we're going to focus a lot on food waste and on meat and dairy products next, kind of reducing the consumption of those. And third, and a distant third, would be you know, choosing which kind of food you buy, whether it's organic or not or local or not. But the big thing is really food waste and diets. Those are much, much more important. Um, and anyway, so I, I don't know if we've ever seen a really great national campaign like this, um, in my opinion. Um, I'm not sure we're going to pull it off, but I think there's a lot of room to experiment with that. And after this election, regardless of your politics, um, I think people are kind of fed up with Washington. And maybe that's why uh, we got the election result we did. People want something really disruptive. But um, I also see a lot of people um, who feel kind of hopeless, like, oh, my God, what, you know, I can't trust government to do anything. And I think a lot of people are feeling um, maybe living in the Bay Area with its Silicon Valley folks are a little bit of a libertarian streak where people kind of want to see what can I do myself or what can we do ourselves in my community? And that's where personal actions actually could make a pretty sizable difference if they scaled. The, the question is scaling. And 
in an era of social media and collaboration, um, unprecedented level of collaboration we see amongst people, maybe this is the time for that to work. I don't know, but I'm, I'd love to give it a try. I'd really like to see us try. So that's a powerful point about outreach opportunities and the kinds of conversations that we need to be fostering. And I can think of some creative ways to do some of that in a classroom. Um, and we have a lot of teachers who listen to the podcast who are probably frantically scribbling ideas. But you're coming at this from a museum. So what have you learned about communication in museums that's kind of different than the kinds of communication styles that, it, that you found were effective in the other kinds of outreach that you've done? Well, I've learned the hard way um, that in museums, uh, we definitely don't want to use the, the old science deficit model for, uh, for um, engagement. That idea that, well, if I just tell people the facts again, but slower and louder, then they'll understand climate change and want to do something. That's just not true because people have heard the facts about climate change. They just choose not to listen because they don't like you. They don't really, they don't really like us. You know, they don't want to hear it. And it's a cultural problem, not an intellectual one. And museums, though, we get past that cultural barrier because um, I can bring a Donald Trump voter or a Bernie Sanders voter into our coral reef exhibit. And if they're there with their friend, their loved one, their child, grandchild, they will see a moment of awe and wonder and beauty. And to share it with somebody they love, that's magic. And I don't care what your politics are or where you started. You will come out of an exhibit like that a little bit transformed and you're willing to have a conversation. I've had a lot of conversations about like things like climate change with people that um, could never have happened if they didn't share a moment of awe and beauty and wonder. So what I've learned in museums is that if you want to get into the human mind uh, with somebody who disagrees with you, try first to go through their hearts. You find common ground emotionally. Everybody thinks redwoods are amazing and beautiful. Everybody loves to see a whale off the coast traveling off with his calf in a migration. Uh, everybody is awe and wonder when they see a giant dinosaur skeleton. And those are areas of common ground that can be a conversation starter. So um, that's the thing that I think we as science, science communicators need to do a lot better is find that kind of emotional connection and one that is truly universal that I find all the time is, again, sharing a moment of beauty and awe with someone you care about is something every human being thrives in. We all, we all love that experience. And if we can start there, and as scientists and storytellers, we're very good at that. And yet sometimes we don't, we don't see that connection we have with almost everyone around us. So that, that's what I would ask our science colleagues and science communicators and teachers who listen to this podcast is to think about that. What are those truly universal experiences that would help connect us all? And maybe that's where we begin the conversation. Uh, it can be powerful and very, very affirming. I think that's a really great, positive and powerful message to end on. So um, thank you, John. For joining us. We really appreciated having you today. Yeah, well, thanks for having us. And thanks for doing this great podcast. I'm so pleased to see it out there and, uh, and thriving. It seems to be doing great. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we're not quite reaching all the billion people <laughs> who are the problem, but we're getting there. Episode by episode. One day at a time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we'll make sure to include links to John's blog at The Macroscope in our show notes, uh, as well as his TED Talk. Um, and you can also find him on Twitter as at Global Eco Guy. Um, thank you all for listening and a huge thank you to our sponsor, Arcadia Capital. If you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. And as always, feel free to hit us up with your thoughts on future guests, show ideas, or pretty much anything. We love feedback. Our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail. 
And you can follow us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. We are all in this together. So for Eric, Andy, our producer, Stephen Lacey, I'm Jacqueline Gill. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank Arcadia Power for supporting the Warm Regards podcast. Arcadia's game-changing technology platform is giving anyone who pays a power bill the ability to go solar and to save. No need for a rooftop. With Arcadia, you can subscribe to panels nationwide, get savings on your monthly bill, and if you move, your savings will move to your next utility. Reduce your impact and save with Arcadia's Community Solar. Learn more at arcadiapower.com solar. <laughs>